Welcome to another episode of the Speechly Podcast, where you can expect conversations exploring the best opportunities in the world of voice user interfaces. Today, we have the second interview from the Voice Pioneers Fireside Chat series. And in this series, you can expect interviews with individuals who have made a significant impact in the world of voice technology. We will explore the past and what ultimately makes them a pioneer, while also exploring topics around the current and future user behavior with voice-enabled experiences. And today, my guest is the one and only Noelle Silver. Noelle provides an amazing perspective on voice technology. Given her vast experiences across many well-known companies, including Amazon, Microsoft, NPR, Red Hat, and IBM, just to name a few. However, listening to this interview, you will quickly realize that despite having an amazing career, Noelle is driven by using her experience to educate more people on how to enter the world of voice technology and artificial intelligence. In this discussion, we discuss topics such as what was it like to ultimately build a hundred of the first skills to ever exist on the Alexa platform? What did Amazon get right and what did they get wrong with the launch of Alexa? What are the common scenarios where a voice user interface can add value to an experience? What are the differences between a multimodal voice user interface and a purely conversational voice user interface? What are the different considerations you should take when building a voice UI for consumers versus the enterprise? And what do we need to pay attention to now with things like privacy and security in voice-enabled experiences to ensure that we have a healthy ecosystem in the future? I hope you enjoy this conversation with Noelle Silver on the Speechly Podcast. Hey, Noelle, thanks for coming on the Speechly Podcast for the Voice Pioneers Fireside Chat series. Uh, could we just start by giving a quick background of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, excited to be here. Um, always love uh, this podcast and I'm really excited to be one of the people that get to talk to you about it. Um, yes, as you said, I'm Noelle Silver and I uh, really, I guess the most pertinent information is my journey started into AI as a, I was a cloud infrastructure architect. So I knew nothing about artificial intelligence or voice, um, but I was working at Amazon Web Services and got the you know coveted email that said, do you want to join this cool new team? We don't know what it's going to do or how well it's going to do, but it's you know about building kitchen voice devices. And so I jumped at the opportunity that was like seven years ago now um, and became an early developer. I built over a hundred skills for Amazon Alexa in those couple year, first couple years uh, before moving into the data science side of Alexa. Um, and some of those skills did very well. I have over a million unique users. And so, uh, and, and I'm not like, at, I mean, I guess I'm an enterprise developer, but I've never been like an indie developer building apps and putting them in a store. So this was the first of its kind. Um, and it was really, <laughs> to this day, I'm still kind of shocked that it happened. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm uh, really excited to sort of dig into your, your work experience, uh, look at the past, present, future of voice. Uh, I know you've worked at a lot of interesting companies, obviously Amazon, Yes. Uh, one of them, IBM, Microsoft, NPR, lo long list of of, of very interesting companies. Uh, I mean, we could start with uh, just what initially even got you interested in voice technology. So I know you said you received this email while you were at Amazon. Uh, did you have any sort of interest in the world of, of voice or, or uh, maybe it was speech recognition at this point, just overall um, voice technology? How, how interested were you at this point or, or what got you 
uh, first to be interested in what the, the possibilities were with voice technology? Yeah, I mean, I would probably say it was more nascent than like, and it was not an academic interest, right? It was more that I was, I'm a science fiction like buff. I mean, I read as much science fiction as I have time for, um, but I grew up reading science fiction like through, um, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school. Uh, I, you know, I tend to focus on like the golden age of, you know, 1946 to like 1960. Um, you know, Bradbury, Asimov, like all of these, but in most of these stories, the robots talked, right? In most of these stories, there was this contextual ability to communicate to the technology with your voice. And so I always, always loved it. I always thought that that was the way it was. I remember watching the Jetsons as a kid and having Rosie the robot who was like a member of the family. Um, and so it was never a foreign concept as it was to many of my peers, right? Where they were like, what are we doing? <laughs> How is this working? Or the opposite, they were very academic. So I was always the aspirational one kind of in the room, right? Who was like, oh, this is like, you know, science fiction become fact. Um, and I actually, after I, I've been in multiple meetings with Jeff Bezos talking about this project, and it was that exact same childlike, you know, in the beginning, I mean, it then became an enterprise like anything else. But in the beginning, it was very much this childlike wonder, could we create the Star Trek computer, is this possible? Um, and yeah, so that I, I don't think there was any real academic experience or interest or like, I'm gonna get into, I'm gonna be a linguist or none of that. It was more like, I've read these books and man, that'd be cool if <laughs> we could do that in real life. So and here we are. It's so funny you say that. I, I or, uh, interviewed Igor Yablikov, the founder of Yap, obviously acquired yes. by Amazon. Uh, and asked the same exact question to sort of kick off the conversation and almost the, the exact same response who oh, that's cool. you know, citing Asimov and foundation and, and some of these. Yes. Brilliant oh my gosh. We'll have to be friends. So then. <laughs> yeah, it's too, too funny, but uh, maybe we could dig into then some of the, the actual work. Uh, so uh, Amazon, obviously interesting. Maybe we could start there with the hundred skills that you built, what that actually looked like in practice, what, what your role was, um, and then also would like to look at some of the other companies uh, that you've worked at. Maybe we could just look at the ones where you're working at voice tech or working on voice tech specifically, and then just yeah. dig a little bit more into the context on what that actual work looked like, experiences and, and everything. So uh, maybe we could start with Amazon. Uh, and uh, it sounds like that was sort of the genesis or the, the first step into to voice. So uh, could you maybe just describe, um, I know that you started working somewhere else within the organization, got this email, and then it sort of started. So could you maybe uh, just tell us that story and some of the context there and, and what your actual work looked like? Yeah, and as a matter of fact, it's interesting. My very first job in the Alexa organization was as an AVS solution architect. If you remember, I don't even know if it's a thing anymore, but it was um, Alexa voice service, and it was meant for device manufacturers. So I spent the first year on that team going to hackathons when we were doing like maker fairs and, you know, people were building devices from scratch. I don't know if you remember this project is still on GitHub, the Alexa Pi, um, like, you know, we literally go to these events and give people Raspberry Pis and teach them how to make their own Alexa with like Apple earbuds and a push button. <laughs> and it was awesome. Um, but it was very much that it was the devices side, which was interesting for me because of course I, I liked the idea of Alexa 
kind of the commercial device, but I ended up coming to it from more of a maker perspective. Um, I was at like MIT, Harvard. We did all of these really big maker hackathons and every winner, like for two years, ended up having Alexa in like the fact that they could add voice as a web service. And this is before Lex, before any of these commoditized AI models, right? So they could now add voice as a service inside of their Apple, you know, whatever their hackathon solution was. And on stage, they would talk to whatever it was. I remember building, um, it's still on, what was it? Hackster.io. I built a bartender. I um, mean, I literally built a, I like created a woodworking box. It had bartender engraved into it and an Alexa symbol um, and the schematics and everything I built out on a Raspberry Pi. I think I burnt out 30 something Raspberry Pis because I'm not an electrician. As a matter of fact, the day I left AWS, um, one of my peers gave me like electricity for dummies or like electrician, you know, EE for dummies. I wish I would have read it more, but, um, but I, anyway, I built this robot and it used five, um, five DC motors, silicon tubing, and I connected it to Alexa so that I could talk to Alexa, launch a skill and have it build me a Negroni, which was Jeff Bezos's favorite drink at the time. Um, it's so funny because BBC ended up picking up that story. Like that's pretty cool. <laughs> so that was, that was my first foray into like public media. Um, but, but yeah, that was my first introduction. However, very quickly, like Jeff Bezos specifically was like, we need more skills. We need more people out there telling people how to build skills. And the vice president at the time, who's now over at Capital One, Rob Polciani, he saw me speak as an AVS architect and he was like, you should be an evangelist. And I was like, you're right. I mean, I kind of am. And he's like, no, 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 I mean for skills. Like you need to go and talk about skills. And he literally, it was the first time in my career I, I realized it was all about who you knew sometimes when you get a promotion. Because <laughs> he literally picked me up and dropped me into a new team with a new title and I didn't have to interview or anything. And up to that point in my career, especially as like an underrepresented minority, right? Like I struggled for those like opportunities. I'd never been picked up by a VP and dropped into a new role with no, no questions asked. Um, and so, so it does happen. <laughs> Um, but that put me on a journey for Alexa and building Alexa skills. That was like in 2015, 14, 2015. Um, and yeah, that year I built a hundred skills for Alexa. Uh, and, and I did it because, I mean, there's a couple of things, right? Imposter syndrome. Um, I'm the only one who's not classically trained in computer science <laughs> on the team. Everyone there is double degreed, maybe a PhD, like they're extremely bright people. Um, and I'm like, you know, didn't graduate from college, didn't graduate from high school, taught myself coding, like, what am I doing here? So, so that's why I tend to have this large, like huge library of skills that I built because I kind of was like, well, if I, if they build one, I'm building 10. right? <laughs> um, and oh, funny story. I, at one point I had 10% of Alexa uh, because I built a hundred skills before we hit the thousand skill mark. Um, and so I, my team got me this shirt that said 1%. It lasted like 35 seconds, but it was pretty fun. <laughs> So that's that's amazing though. So at this point, you're I think you have a really interesting perspective. So Jeff Bezos is saying we need more skills here. We need other people to start building. Uh, what better way to uh, inspire than to just go and actually build and and get that actual experience, which then you can 
explain to other people and everything. Yes, exactly. Learn by doing. It became my motto that I still have today. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And I think that's definitely, that could be a, a whole conversation in and of itself. But um, yes. at that point, what was the, the focus um, or the intended focus of these skills? Were there any categories or scenarios, yes. things that were of, of main focus at this point? Or did you see other opportunities that weren't exactly clearly stated? Sometimes that other category can be what is yeah. interesting. So we'd just love to hear what sort of the focus was. And well, I mean, this is the voice pioneer podcast. So I have to tell you some like secret stuff of what happened at the very beginning. So in the beginning, when we didn't know what skills to build, Jeff Bezos made a wish list of 20 skills. I wish I had taken a picture of it or documented it. Many of the skills that you saw back then were on this wish list, right? Because obviously all of us are like trying to be on his favorite list. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of them was around meditation. Um, but at that time, there was a limitation on the platform. You could not build streaming audio for more than 90 seconds. It was like a hard stop. Um, and so I built the first mindfulness skill. As a matter of fact, it's still alive and well today. One of my best performing skills of all time. Um, but And it's got a one word invocation, which also is relative, is rare. Like today, you are not allowed to do what I did back then. <laughs> um, but it's just called mindfulness. But when I built it, it was called one minute mindfulness. And then the invocation was mindfulness. And when I built it, I remember the team, even though it was on Jeff Bezos's pet project, like this would be awesome if we had this list, my team was not supportive. Like there was no category for like mindfulness, kindness, happiness, like skills. There were, there were hardly any categories at all. They were mostly um, the skills that we know and love, fact skills. And like, what were some of the other ones? Like recipe skills, like very generic skills that we've got tens of thousands of in the store today. Um, but I was like, this would be so cool. So I did it anyway, because it was very Noel. And I like to do things, even if it's not successful, I would still be like, that's Noel, a Noel-like skill, having mindfulness on the platform. Turned out, of course, it was very popular. And again, another sad, interesting, funny, kind of sad, funny story um, is that when I built that skill within, I don't know, it'd been up for about a year, maybe two. And Jeff Bezos's brother-in-law was trying to test it out and it failed. And he sent an email to Jeff Bezos being like, Psh, this stuff doesn't work. And he sent his coveted like question mark email, right? So all you see is the question mark from Jeff Bezos. And then you read down and you're like, it doesn't work. And then you read down and it's my skill, <laughs> right? So a war room is created, a bunch of devs get involved. And uh, it's really, it, it was one of those moments where I was like, this is not why I built this. Like I wanted to be on your happy good list. I want to be on your failed list. It turned out though, that it was one of, and now it's interesting because we just ended up um, coming out of like a massive failure at AWS uh, just a, a week ago or so, but, um, but it happens. It happens at least once a year. We just forget. Um, it happens not often, but often enough that it's not like a huge novelty. But that was the first time Elasticsearch had gone down in such a way that it brought Alexa down with it. And all the skills stopped working. Um, since then, of course, they've created redundancy and things that won't happen again. But but it was interesting, right, to get, I'm like, oh, Jeff Bezos is writing an email about me, except it's, he thinks my skill is broken. And it wasn't, right? I kept going, and my skill's not broken. <laughs> And my code, my code actually works. Um, but that those were like the early days, you know, like how do we, 
how do we build these things? But that those categories didn't exist. Today, there are those categories. I remember working with a BD who was also into yoga and like my kind of world. And I remember her and I sitting and talking about like, how do we get this into, because even the first initial categories didn't include these skills, even though they were popular. So we were like, how do we get this category in there? And so we started reaching out to like Gaiam and Kind Granola and like all of these brands to be like, if we can get you to say yes, Alexa has to like recognize that it's a thing and then build us a category. And ultimately that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, that's that's super cool. Um, so obviously Amazon and this Alexa platform much more focused on uh, consumer focused types of, experience, types of experiences, but you also worked at some other companies like IBM, Microsoft, uh, maybe known a little bit more for the enterprise uh, side of the table. Uh, whichever... Uh, when you'd like to start with, whether it's IBM, Microsoft, um, can we maybe look at the the work that you're doing here or at these companies um, as it relates to to voice technology and 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 what exactly uh, that looked like? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the biggest opportunities I had was coming to the end of my time at Amazon. I was there almost four years. We had launched four language models. It was, you know, we were starting to see huge success. We were at like 60 million users from a thousand beta users when we started. Um, so huge, huge opportunity. Um, but I was, you know, we were getting to the point where we were more like shining things as opposed to building things. Like it was, it was less, I don't know, there wasn't as much innovation um, as I had wanted or hoped for. So Microsoft calls and says, hey, we have a very similar scenario happening here at Microsoft. We're building this thing called cognitive services. We're, I was uh, talking to research and development. We're the research and development team, but we're looking to productize and operationalize the models that we've built. And I was like, well, that sounds a whole lot like Alexa, because it was all about operationalizing, democratizing, getting more people to use them. So they hired me in as a principal PM um, to basically be the glue between academia and now productized Azure services. Um, So I spent two years doing that work and it was super fun, of course, because of my work on Alexa, though I do like a lot of other AI now, like I'm a very big fan of computer vision and you know, augmented reality and all these things that Microsoft introduced me to that I wouldn't have seen if I was always, you know, if I stayed at Amazon. Um, But at Microsoft specifically, the speech team was doing some really incredible work. So one of the things I always love to talk about is their voice synthesis work, which at at first sounded weird (laughs) um, because I was like, why would I need, you know, and even I thought it was cool. I'm like, oh, I could create my own voice and then I could put it, you know, so that when an alarm goes off, rather than me having to go tell my kids to wake up, it could just be like synthetic me. And then I said that out loud and I'm like, well, that doesn't really, that sounds kind of creepy actually. (laughs) And then you start thinking about black mirror scenarios, but then a company, you you probably know them, um, Vocal ID, right? Came out and they actually created this use case for synthesized voice where I was like, that's why we build this stuff, right? When, when companies like Microsoft build and Amazon as well, build these commoditized models, it's to find those people, us, who have ideas that will use them in ways that those teams could never have imagined. And so Vocal ID ended up creating like a voice prosthesis process for people who had degenerative vocal conditions that would lose their voice eminently. They could go in, record their voice or take existing recordings, create a synthesized voice. And now if and when they lose their voice, 
they have their voice to become their synthesized voice instead of, you know, like a Stephen Hawking kind of like robotic sound. Um, and it was really, it was really cool to see, like it takes a, a person who's close to that problem to take the AI and mush those two things together and create a solution like that. Um, so I'm always impressed. Now I keep an eye out for those kind of kind of AI for good projects. Um, but that's one of them. But like voice on in Microsoft, I mean, I was on the Cortana team, rest in peace. Um, and I mean, I, maybe it's still there, but we all know like Cortana had its moment and kind of <laughs> didn't do what we all thought it would do. Um, but while I was there, I was part of the initiative to bring Alexa and Cortana together. So I don't know if you remember, but there was a moment on stage where um, the two leaders of uh, Microsoft and Amazon shook hands on stage and said Alexa would be part of every Microsoft machine moving forward as there as an option. Um, it's not, I don't know what happened to it. I mean, I don't use it now. I, I do use voice on my Surface book, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the most interesting thing at Microsoft that I got involved with with voice was the fact that um, I had an opportunity to work at NASA, uh, JPL actually, um, and they were building this Mars rover to go into schools and talk to schools. And I remember speaking to them when I was at Alexa and Alexa at the Alexa team, we had to tell the NASA team, you're gonna have to name your Mars rover Alexa in order for you to use our voice service. And that, irritated me a little. I was like, that doesn't seem right. And the team at NASA was like, we're not going to have kindergartners call a Rover Alexa. We're going to have it called, it's going to be called Rovi. Like that's its name. <laughs> They're not going to use Alexa to invoke it. And at that time we were at Alexa very hard focused on Alexa as the brand. Um, so NASA ended up going and looking for other opportunities. They ended up finding an option. There's a virtual assistant, Microsoft GitHub repo. They ended up finding the ability to build a virtual assistant with speech to text, text to speech, neural text to speech, and they could call it whatever they wanted. Um, and, and other companies followed suit, BMW, right? They didn't want to use Alexa, so they used, they created Joy and it's built same technology, just built in a way that wasn't tied to a brand. It was tied to their brand, which makes complete sense. So that was a, a big lesson I learned is that, you know, I don't know if I would have, as the leadership in Alexa, if I would have made those hard rules and lost the opportunity to be represented by brands like NASA, BMW, you know, like, I don't know, that's yeah. hard. But those are the, those are the tough conversations, you, you know, you get to have as a leader when these products are, are just starting to evolve. Yeah, I, I definitely want to get your thoughts, especially with your uh, many different experiences in the, the voice tech space uh, on, you know, what could have maybe done, been done differently um, to get different outcomes. But before jumping into that, um, I, I do want to do a little bit of a segue because I know that you've uh, would have you have what seems like almost like an endless list of uh, awards and honors from your your work experiences in, in voice. So I'm I'm curious, just based on those um, awards that have been sort of voice oriented, which of those are you the most proud of, and and why? I would say probably you know of course the first one. It's like your first child. Um, but my first one I got from I think it was called the Alexa Conference back then before. Again, Alexa was like, you can't use our name on a conference. So now all of our conferences are voice specific, you know, voice instead. Um, but it was called the Alexa conference. Um, now I think it's Project Voice. 
but I was their first ever executive of the year. And the reason I love it, a, of course, it was the first award I had won. It started the journey, right? And, but also because like Gary Vaynerchuk was on the list, you know, like these names where I was like, there's no way. Um, and I honestly, like you could see the pictures of me getting the award. Like I had my backpack on, like I was walking out. I didn't even think um, that I would get it because there was like significant executives. Um, but one of the things I, I love about all the organizations that ever give me an award is that they, they don't necessarily, you know, like in my mind, there are people that have more degrees than me. There are people that, you know, like there's plenty of expertise. There's people doing great work and they choose and it's only one year, right? So, but they choose to honor like like I'm literally the one like with fingers on a keyboard, just trying like going from nothing to something. Um, you know, I have no every almost every award I've gotten has been based on work I did not get paid to do. Right. It was all like side hustle work, all my skills. I was an Alexa evangelist, but skill building was not part of that deal. Like I built all those in my spare time. Today, I still have them running in my little Alexa, you know, Amazon uh, AWS account. Um, all separate, right? Because I was I'm so passionate about the work that I do. Same on uh, Microsoft. I mean, I ended up leaving Microsoft, and then a year later they came back and they're like, "Well, we want to make you an you know an evangelist and uh, an MVP, um, so that you can continue to do this work." And they give me two thousand dollars a month in credits and like all of these great things. So I feel like as long as I keep doing what I I do and like sharing it with the world, and I'm excited and happy about it people tend to reward me. I used to say this mantra, you know, um, that I serve the universe and the universe serves me. And, and it kind of creates this reciprocity. And I don't even, you know, it's not intentional, but I'm just, I just try to give as much as I can. And I get surprised every so often with one of these amazing awards. But yeah, that would be my favorite. Uh, I mean, executive of the year, like that's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that is really cool. Uh Cool. So I, I want to sort of segue into um, looking more at the, of the present, but like I said, I, I really want to get your perspective on um, sort of the rollout of voice assistance um, as we know it. So what do you think uh, the big tech companies like Google, Amazon, um, what, what do you think they ultimately got right with the rollout of the voice assistance uh, and the tooling around it? And then what do you think uh, could have been done better um, from your perspective? Yeah, so again, I'll get to give you some secret um, inside scoop that I don't think I've ever shared before, but I've been, I was in the room um, and asked to present to the CEOs of Best Buy and Target when they were making the decision on whether or not to include Alexa on their shelves. And for retailers out there, you know, like, it's, you know, if you, it's like a Trojan horse, <laughs> if you let Alexa in, because it's always easier for me. I, at least this is what I do. Like, it is easier for me to be like, I don't think I have a device. If you have a device, you know, mute it now. But if you say like, Alexa, add whatever walnuts, Alexa, add yogurt. Like, it's so easy for me to just have Alexa add it. And then where is it adding it to a shopping cart that auto shows up in Amazon fresh that auto delivers to my house? Like, Amazon will always make it natively easier to do retail with them. So imagine if you will, you're that CEO, which I watched and I literally felt sick to my stomach watching them have to decide, do we knowingly let a product like this that we know will sell like hotcakes. So we'll get this short-term you know, perceived value of having a, a hot selling product on our shelves, 
but a long-term decline in overall customer value, right? And I, I thought that was crazy. So that from Amazon's perspective, good on them, right? Like they got in there, they went to big retailers and they convinced those executives, put us on your shelves because that increased the likelihood that people would eventually, and we're starting to see this now. I mean, people have been buying devices for five years, at least seven years, really, for those of us who bought the first ones. Um, but they've been buying them for a while. And for the last three years running, it's the top selling device, which is all retail-based. And so, and we're starting to see that number increase a little bit at a time around those people purchasing and doing retail. I'll tell you, I just got my Fire TV. Uh, we have a bunch of devices, over a hundred uh, voice enabled devices in our house, but we have Fire TVs now everywhere. Some of them are like embedded, you know, you buy them as a Fire TV. So there's nothing you plug in. Some of them have this stick, but the one that uh, I love, like I just recently saw they were showing a perfume commercial and it was literally like I'm walking through the mall, a little pop-up at the bottom says, you know, hit your voice remote and say, send me a sample. What? <laughs> like, that's amazing. I was like, this is the future. And needless to say, I'm like, send me a sample. <laughs> um, so really interesting times, uh, you know, for voice plus retail. But I feel like Amazon definitely did that, right? I mean, they, they are now right? Integrating into major appliances. I have a voice-enabled microwave, Alexa-enabled microwave, and Alexa-enabled, a bunch of Alexa-enabled TVs. I now have an Alexa-enabled set of sunglasses, <laughs> right? They give me social audio and now the ability to do whatever I want to do. But mostly I see something I want and I just tell Alexa, like, put that on a list for later. Um, and if Amazon makes it easy for me to buy it, I won't go to another vendor um, to, to, you know, I won't go online and Google it, like, because it's already on my list. So building these behaviors, excellent work. Like we, we did a great job um, during those early years at that. Um, to go to the, the darker side, right? The things I wish we had done better. I definitely remember looking around and realizing there weren't a whole lot of, there wasn't really a whole lot of diversity in the team. Now, when I say diversity, I don't mean like there was gender diversity. As a matter of fact, voice is one of the most gender diverse, you know, uh, technology organizations or part of our industry. A lot of linguists tend to be female. Like it's just very, in my mind, very healthy from that perspective, not all teams, of course, but, but at Alexa, like, I had at one point, all of my leadership was female um, until it hit, you know, the executive ranks, but, but it was like, you know, a lot, there was 70% female. We were looking for men to join the team, um, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Like at the beginning, we were launching a product and it was known Jeff Bezos made, you know, basically our mission was to create a kitchen device, right? For the 1% of the 1%, people who could afford to put a voice enabled device in their kitchen <laughs> um, for fun, right? That kind of didn't work at first. Um, and so with that though, we didn't, the, there was a whole team dedicated to acquiring data around voice, like acquiring different types of voice samples. And they weren't focusing on Miami, right? They weren't focusing on people who maybe spoke English as a second language, or even more moderately, people in New Jersey who just speak English differently um, than we do, or people in Oakland, California. You know, I was asked to actually go to Oakland, California to meet, if any of you know that this person, Marshawn Lynch, he's an NFL player, 
um, was really big back then because the Seahawks, well, anyway, there was a Super Bowl situation um, that happened with him. And, uh, but anyway, he was having trouble because he's from Oakland. He has an Oakland accent. He was having trouble getting Alexa to respond to him. So I didn't know who he was at the time. So they're like, Noel, you go. So I went to Oakland, set up his whole beast mode storefront with Alexa. So you could walk in and say, Alexa, turn on, you know, turn on beast mode and the store would turn on and all the lights would go on. It was awesome but he couldn't get it to trigger because of his accent. And again, that's all goes back to, did we collect data on that? Like, and even any diversity in that, in that initial collection. So, and that's just kind of one example, but we just weren't really asking questions about who's gonna use this. I say the same thing about like, we were really going after the 1% of the 1% of Americans as we started to diversify globally. But even as we started to diversify use cases, right? We weren't thinking about the classroom, we weren't thinking about the nursing home. We weren't thinking about the hospital room, all places that Alexa is starting to like thrive. As a matter of fact, you probably know, um, uh, Alexa has invested and created now an elder care like part of their team. There's a person who does that now. Um, but back then, just we didn't really do a good job of asking better questions. I call, you know, today I've come to know it as design justice. Like when you're designing a product, especially one like Alexa, do you know you don't just ask who is this going to help which we definitely ask that question like how can we make this awesome but also who's it going to hurt who's it going to you know whose lives will change in not a great way um and so I'll, I'll end with you know i i get a couple things that people mention when i get off of stage talking about alexa or talking about voice um over you know in the past and in the future and one of the things that they say to me is around like how do you know that Alexa, just the name Alexa and using that for a device like this Echo um, has changed the lives of so many people who happen to have that name. And, and I didn't, you know, at first I was like, I mean, that seems kind of cheesy that, you know, I don't know. I don't know how real that is. But as I started meeting these people and working with these people and hearing the weird snide comments people would make about like, Alexa, get me coffee or whatever, like crazy weirdness. Um, and I realized there's uh, over 100,000 people who have this name, so much so that people have stopped naming their children Alexa. And that says something, right? They've stopped naming their kids Alexa. So I don't know that we thought about that. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure it would have changed anything, except maybe we would have been more empathetic to that group. Maybe we would have created swag for them or invited them to have a discussion or something that would have changed the momentum because now they're hurt. They're a hurt community looking for support as opposed to, hey, we hear you, we see you before we've even started. This is why. Do you know we never really told people why we called Alexa, Alexa? And there's a bunch of urban myths, um, but there was an intentionality there. There's linguistic reasons why A and X coming together don't cause a lot of you know, false wake-ups. And that was a big problem we were trying to solve at first. It was also after Alexandria, the largest library in the world at the time, right? So there was there were reasons there, um, but none of that was really shared in a way that was transparent enough that that audience would be like, oh, I see that you weren't just being mean and trying to ruin my life. Um, so that I feel like those kind of things, those human pieces, um, we weren't really as great at. And, and, and obviously hindsight's always twenty twenty, and it's tough when you're yeah. um, sort of like a first mover, uh, obviously, Siri came out a few years ahead, but in terms of really trying to uh, encourage a third-party ecosystem around the tooling like Alexa did, I think 
or Amazon and, and Alexa, I think it makes it difficult uh, to really be able to even know what the repercussions are going to be. But it is um, interesting to, to think back. And, and now, obviously, we have a lot of these different companies that as a result of um, this new industry almost being created around here, we have people thinking about, you know, some of these different accessibility issues and and create yes. more um, accessible experiences. So uh, it's great to see that at least now we have more people uh, coming together to sort of solve some of these um, problems or, or maybe uh, create opportunity out of, out of that. But um, yeah, there's a little evolution anyway. <laughs> a little. <laughs> uh, so thinking about uh, voice experiences today, um, do you think that there are any common scenarios or contexts or, or behaviors within existing user behaviors or it, it sort of existing user experiences uh, that can make them a good candidate uh, for a voice UI or a, a voice enabled experience? Yeah, I mean, what I always encourage companies to do when I like do you know sessions with them or strategy sessions um, or workshops is I encourage them to look at things that their customers are doing already and then cross-referencing that with the amount of friction in the process of them doing that thing. So I remember in the early days of Alexa, we were looking for these types of use cases and we found in the banking industry, right? There was something that customers did every single day that was like five clicks from the homepage or a menu drop down a click and two more clicks or something. It was just friction. Um, and that ended up being, and you might remember these days, the routing number, right? Like back in the day, it was hard today companies make it so much easier. Like they've now added it to your account. Like they realized that this, this was a challenge. But back then, like there was the only hope you had was to like find it, ask for it. It would tell you where to go. It was like three clicks away. And so it became a very easy early adoption for a voice skill, right? It's like, hey, you need the routing number? Just ask our bank and they'll give it to you. And even embedding that voice, you know, going beyond the assistant and talking about like just adding that to a web page. And now we're talking about just natural language in general, just being able to type in what's my routing number into a chatbot, like saves so much time. And it, it just goes to show like from a, a more holistic perspective, if you look and examine and you should be examining how your users are interacting with you, how long it's taking them to get those results, are there any complaints about it? And those are things that I usually target first. And I always say, don't target like eight things, like pick one thing and get the people that are already struggling with that, show them that, that it's easier now and they will become fast friends of your new voice interface, right? And then they'll tell their people and then you start evolving it and adding more functionality. Um, but that is one area, like it's a bit more generic probably. Um, retail is huge, right? The, the opportunity, I still don't use my voice in retail other than on my Alexa device. But like, if I happen to be, you know, like one thing, oh, I went into like a pharmacy the other day. What was I looking for? I can't remember what I was looking for, but I was like, you know, what would be nice if I could just walk in, go to a kiosk and ask, where are the earplugs? And it would tell me where they were, right? Um, I, it, I wasn't looking for earplugs at the time. It was something, maybe halls, I can't remember, but I could not find it. And I went multiple times and I was like, I'm not gonna ask anyone cause I'm antisocial. So I just left. And I was like, this is a good opportunity um, for someone to be able to use, or even give me an option in the mobile app, right? To locally know where I am. And I could ask my mobile app on my headset. Like, you know, cause I, I do provide these like solutions to companies like these big 
pharmaceutical retailers. And I'll say, you should do this thing. And they'll be like, oh. And then they start telling me all the problems with like audio and big spaces and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, there are ways to solve for this. Solve. <laughs> like, yeah. like it, and it's why I love Amazon so much because they are customer obsessed and they literally start with the customer and work backwards. So you never get to that excuse of someone saying, oh, well, it's hard because of this, because the customer drives the momentum and the, and the roadmap. And so I always also tell, you know, organizations that are looking to build new voice experiences, ask your customers, they will tell you what they want. Ask your customers, even create a list, like send out an email and be like, Hey, you know, $25 gift card to anyone who uses an Alexa and create a little user group of people who already have Alexas that work, that are customers of yours. Right. And then they already know you, they already like you. And now you're going to build a voice experience and ask them what they wish they could just say and have done. Um, there are so many examples of great, great startups turned into companies that got acquired where all they did was solve a very specific problem for a customer, reduce friction for a customer, um, but did it in such a way that like that it created a huge affection towards that organization. And they had one, one thing that they did. So it's not a big deal. I, I, I just fear that some people feel like they have to boil the ocean. They have to do a bunch of stuff to make a big splash. And it really is more of the pain that you solve. And it could be a very small pain that they experience all the time. And that could be life-changing for some of the users. Yeah, and I like what you said around what are customers already doing uh, today that causes friction, um, at, at least with the, the use cases that we find at Speechly consistently, usually it comes back to some element of efficiency or simplicity for the user. And I think that that really closely does align with, especially, uh, for your first sort of voice feature or voice experience or um, voice-enabled experience, picking that one thing is not only important for, um, I think, the team to be able to ensure that you build something of high quality, but it also serves as a really good stepping stone to further uh, voice features, I guess, if you will, in the application or support um, yes. The user actually expects to be able to come to your thing and get value out of the, the voice feature um, from the get. And like you said, if you try and do eight things at once, we're not programmed to know how to engage with uh, whatever it may be with our voice uh, at like an expert level necessarily, yep. at least the majority of people aren't. So yep. how can we create this user behavior naturally um, in our design not just expect the systems to be able to, you know, do everything for us. I think it really does maybe take some of these elements of thoughtful um, design of these experiences as well. But yeah, I mean, it actually reminds me one of the earliest um, things when I went to Microsoft that I went back and told all of my Alexa devs to use um, was like, you know, FAQs are pretty common, right? Like it's not easy to do an FAQ obviously on like an Alexa device. So I was very excited when I uncovered this service, which is an AI service provided by Microsoft. It's called QNA, like the letters, QNA maker.ai. Um, and it allows you to go in. But what is cool about it is it allows you to point to any FAQ, whether you own it or not, but particularly your own, but also any product documentation, any documentation you have, and it will scrape it and turn it into questions that and answers that you can then edit, um, but it turns it into this question and answer chatbot. 
and you can even add personality. There's like witty and charming and like all these different personality types. But that alone, right? Like not even building anything new, just taking existing information about your product services that customers are likely going to ask you and putting them so that someone could just ask the question instead of going somewhere and looking through a list of questions, right? How frustrating that is. No, I don't even know. I know people that build FAQs. I'm not sure how many people actually use FAQs unless they really can't find any other way. But Google, right? Google's our natural language search engine to, to do this type of work, but creating that as a skill or more importantly, embedding that right into your website. So if I have a question about something, I can just type it in and it's going to search through all the product documentation, everything on the website and go, oh, I found it. I don't have the exact answer, but it's probably on this page. Even that would be helpful, right? And so um, we call it like enterprise search, but just creating better search results um, where you're not Google, like if I am a business owner, it's cool that people can Google, but I'd like them when they come to my site to use my own search feature <laughs> to find it. And now even Microsoft, you poll people um, who work at Microsoft and you ask them and they have a search engine and you ask them their number one you know, tool they use <laughs> to find things on Microsoft. Anyway, it's, it's not surprising, but it's also kind of disheartening. Like, how do we how do we build a better story there where we can help people find what they need? Because the information's out there. It's much more discovery of that. I mean, that's a whole nother, like you said earlier, a topic for another day. But discovering content in a voice world, like we can make that better. Uh, it's not awesome right now. Yeah. Uh, and another theme that I think is very relevant or, or heavily discussed uh, today is uh, multimodal voice experiences. And I, I think uh, this is also somewhere where it's really interesting to get your perspective as, as somebody who uh, pretty much built, like you said, the first, uh, what, whatever, what, what percent? Yeah, hundreds, uh, hundred, first, first hundred in the thousand, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so to, to build the first 10% of skills and then see uh, what was originally this voice-only uh, type of platform then morph into other screens. Now we see voice making its way into web and mobile and, and all the screens around us, Alexa everywhere, just voice everywhere. Um, I'd, I'd be curious maybe to start. Uh, I think that there's probably benefits um, that are inherent with a multimodal voice UI, but there's also benefits to a purely conversational voice UI as well. Um, what do you think are some of the benefits uh, of the multimodal voice UI versus the uh, conversational voice UI? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that I'm more of a both and kind of person. So I believe that everyone should build multimodal. I think you should have a voice only experience when conditionally in your logic, it uncovers that you don't have a screen and you should have even a completely separate, you know, decision tree of behavior that happens when there's no screen, but it's in the same experience, right? You're not building like two skills, if you will, or two apps or two ways um, of doing something like it's one way. And then you're, and this is the future, right? Ambient computing, you are using the environment variables, right? Literally, where are you? What's happening? What's the user doing? Where in the house are they? Where are they in their car? Are they on the road? Are they walking down the street? And use that data to determine how to configure the experience for them. And that is harder work, of course. Um, and we don't see developers do this, though the technology is perfectly capable of doing this. We get this data. We know where they are. We, um, especially through mobile apps, right? We have a lot of um, sensor data that we can use to be more contextual in our 
our delivery of an experience. We just don't. Um, I will give you an example. I have the Alexa frames, um, which is the sunglasses by Alexa, but I also have the new Ray-Ban um, Wayfarers, which are uh, Facebook's interaction. And they use like, hello, Facebook, which I've never said before until I got these things. But um, I now have to say it also in, in my Oculus. But there are these voice uh, spatial audio experiences. And I love them because like, let's say for example, in the Wayfarers, like I, I, I'm hoping that I get the exact same experience if I open up my mobile app, right? It's the same, just a little bit different, but the content is the same. But on my Wayfarers, if I say, like, give me directions, it will like literally ding right to left if I'm turning left. And it'll ding left to right if I'm turning right to show me spatially the direction in which I need to go via audio. Like, it's really interesting to me how rich we could make these experiences if we choose to. So I always, and it's, yes, it's harder. Um, and the burden is more on the developer and the creative to build a better experience. But I will tell you, I have had the, I don't know, pleasure of judging the social bot competition for Alexa prize for the last few years. And I've been, you know, it's a little sad because every year it's kind of the same and every year they get my name wrong, right? Like, <laughs> you know, it'll ask me my name, I'll say it and it'll repeat it back and not be right. I'm just like, I don't know. I just figure there's got to be a, you know, now there's a little bit of emotion that we can interact, right? Integrate with the Alexa APIs, but even then it's not contextual. So the emotion's like awkward and it totally seems like a robot who doesn't know when to laugh or when not to laugh. Right. So it's just, I just feel like we should be so much further than, than where we are. And I guess the, per, the point is, or, or like the moral of that story is like, we have the technology today. The tech is there. We, as the developer, as the creator, as the designer, have to envision, like, it's literally why Asimov is such a good, like, it, it's rich. When you are reading those books, like, you build this world in your mind, and now we have the technology today to deliver those types of experiences to our customers, but we're not. We are falling short, and I, I think it's, a, it's just a dilemma. Um, I heard yesterday, um, Alan... Oh gosh, what's his last name? Um, but he's one of our voice first people. But he was tweeting about like, you know, it's a common theme. Why aren't we further? Why haven't we built better? Why aren't we building, you know, multimodal experiences? I'll tell you in the first year, I heard a guy at SAP build a multimodal experience that allowed you to talk to Alexa, bring up a browser, and then have like dive into sales data, right? Like you could be like, Hey, great. Um, looks like Italy was doing well. Can you dive into Italy? Um, oh, I see that, you know, whoever Claudio was doing great in Italy. Tell me more about him. And these natural language interactions with an Alexa device would then change the screen to zoom in or zoom out on these data pieces. And I was like, and we don't do that though. Like today, that's not a common thing, even though we were able to do it five years ago. So yeah, it's a bit of a dilemma. Um, I think it's why evangelists like myself are still doing the work to try and hopefully bring in a new generation of designers and ideators who will push the envelope on. Do you think that there's been um, maybe just as a function of getting, uh, you know, the speech recognition, natural language technology to a point of, you know, it's only within the last handful of years that we've actually reached human parity in these disciplines. Uh, yeah. That now we maybe have the liberty or the freedom to really get obsessive around the design, 
uh, around the actual user experience now of voice experiences where previously just as a function of the uh, the evolution of the technology, maybe we had to focus on some of the more uh, data science uh, problems and, and some of these uh, maybe more technical problems to, to make this even a reality. I, definitely. I mean, I think I'm always a, a product of like the quote that says, you know, we overestimate what we'll do in a year and underestimate what we'll do in 10. And so I'm always like, we should be doing more like this came out last year, <laughs> right? Like last year, like most enterprises can't even adopt a thing in a year, right? Or, or let alone shift to use it. Um, we never really talked about it, but like I, it's one of the reasons I went to national public radio, right? Was because they were pushing the envelope and they were public radio, like a nonprofit pushing the envelope of what they could do um, with voice. And some of their most, I mean, obviously they're an audio company. That's what they do for a living, but broadcast, right? Like they saw a huge evolution in what they were capable of achieving through Alexa devices, Google devices. They created teams, like very few companies I've worked with. And I've worked with some big companies have dedicated teams, voice teams for building on these platforms. Um, and, and so I, it was good to see because it was like, all right, this is hopeful. Like companies are investing in this. Um, but then also it brings up a bunch of other questions like, wow, should we, should we have two voice teams to build an experience? Um, which was the question as the leader, right? I'm like, I feel like we should build it once and have like channels that we can distribute it. And there was no easy way to do that, you know, three or four years ago. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think we're, we're really at the beginning, right? Even in what we're in year seven from the birth of a product that has literally changed the world, um, so yeah, I, we probably have some evolution, but I just think it's important, for, especially for the listeners of this podcast, because usually if they're listening, they're like interested in this space and maybe just getting involved and learning the history um, that we need this type of growth. Like we need this type of ideation that the world is hungry for us to build better experiences and the tech is now available. Like we've got more AI you know, uh, models available as a service than ever before that can build these multimodal experiences. But yeah, it does take someone who can put the problem of our user and glue it and marry it to, right, the, the technology that we have in the world. And that, unfortunately, there's not a lot of people who can do right now. Yeah. Yeah, that, that brings a, a lot of different thoughts to mind. But uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe now we can uh, peek into the, the future a little bit. Um, so I think what you said with with NPR is interesting, and we've we've referenced maybe a few different industries um, or, or verticals of of where voice has has started to make an imprint today. But uh, do you think that there are any experiences um, within the near future? So looking maybe a few years ahead uh, for voice that somewhat seem inevit inevitable at this point. Uh, it could be either from the enterprise side or or the consumer side. Um, would love to get your thoughts on uh, maybe any sort of uh, um, trends you've been seeing lately. Yeah, I'm, I, I don't know that I would say that there are trends, but they, there are some inevitable things that, that, my goodness, I'd be surprised if we didn't get there. Um, and one of them, I mean, not that you told me to say this, but obviously yeah. Speechly is the first company to come to mind when, you know, it, when I first heard of the product, um, I was like, well, this is what we need, right? Everyone who's not going to do Alexa or Google, right? Who are going to use voice assistant as an excuse, like, oh, well, our customers aren't on voice assistants or I don't want to use a voice assistant. I want to 
like retailers. Most retailers do not want to tie themselves to Amazon for exactly the reason we talked about in this podcast, right? Because it's like a Trojan horse. Like they come in and who knows where that customer will buy their next roll of toilet paper. So I get it. Um, And so for these industries, travel, um, you know, for any of these industries that just voice assistant isn't the way they're going to go to market with a voice experience, they need another way. And being able to, in a low code, no code way, which is also a new fad, it doesn't mean that this is the end of their experience, you know, the end of their journey getting into voice, but it will lower the barrier to entry for anyone who just has a website or a mobile app that they want to build. You know, my son who has Down syndrome, I mean, you've heard me talk about him before. He navigates the whole world with that microphone button, right? If an app has a microphone button, he will use it. YouTube searching, you know, Spotify playlist creation, like you name it, that's what he's doing. And and, and the same thing is true though for my four-year-old, right? Like my four-year-old now also knows that like, you know, and I actually have, a, I have four children, but I won't go through all of them. But like my seven-year-old can type now. He knows how to spell, but geez, why would you do that if you could just hit a button? So the, again, the burden kind of falls on us as brand owners to realize that the world would much rather communicate via voice to our technology And as companies like Speechly evolve and create like a space for us to do it without having to know how to build an NLU model for ourselves, right? Allow us to go in and kind of model it graphically do, you know, and build at least a POC, at least something that our Alexa users, or maybe our, our, we, we always have a a set of customers that like, we'll, we call it the thousand true fans, right? They'll do whatever we say because they like us. And like, we put out a product, even if it's bad, they're the ones who buy it, right? Like there's always that group and that's the group you can test the stuff with. Um, But the reality is, is at the end of the day, creating, opening the funnel of people who can communicate with your brand like that starts with, and I, this is what I see the next five years, every single page that has text on it can actually have it read to them, right? Every single page that has any transactional interaction can actually be facilitated with voice, but not just voice, even natural language, right? Whether it's a chat bot, whether it's a voice enabled application, um, but I do see more, I mean, right now there are billions of these websites and a very small fraction have the ability for me to listen to what's on the page with a neural, <laughs> a neural text-to-speech, right? So it sounds like a normal person, not like a robot. Um, I think that that's, that's really the growth opportunity, right? Is like, how do we get the rest of the companies? And so, you know, like my work is to go into these companies and say, no, you could do this because here's the other really sad perception. Most of these companies are like natural language, voice, like no, no. No, we're not, we can't do that. That's too hard. We have nobody who knows that, no one with that skill set. And it's why I'm good at what I do because I also seven years ago knew nothing. I was a cloud infrastructure person, right? So it's achievable and it's doable, but we do have to create the belief in the world that they can add this to their websites, that they can build this into their mobile apps. And it's not as hard as, you know, it's not the science fiction that they maybe read about 10 years or 20 years ago. Yeah, and I think your reference uh, to to your children made me think of um, something that we touched on earlier where, you know, at least for adults uh, or a lot of adults, you don't go to maybe a mobile app or a a website uh, and expect to be able to engage or interact using your voice. However, if we look at uh, younger generations, kids, um, 
toddlers, yeah. uh, whether it's going up to a TV and tapping, <laughs> tapping or, or, yes, or I should take pictures or, of my TVs, <laughs> exactly right. Uh, or I, I saw um, my, my soon to be uh, nephew um, go up and like say toast at the toaster, for example. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you think that there's anything that um, we could maybe learn from uh, our children and, and kids on, uh, you know, how they're trying to almost engage using their voice to inform how we should be designing or building uh, voice experiences as we go forward? Or am I trying to, uh, you know? No, I, I actually, it's something in my early days of talking on stage, it was one of my most common stories I would tell is like my two-year-old just, well, one of their first words was Alexa. But the next thing huh. is that like that microphone button, as soon as they realized they could talk and that they didn't have to talk perfectly, um, and it would understand or at least try or worse, it would or better, I guess, it would provide some indication of what it thought they heard. And they're like, no, no, no. And they try again. So there's there's so much we learn from those interactions, right? Like the fact that even the older generation, right, like people born, I don't know, in the 40s and before, um, and, and the youngest, they both have a tolerance for training a device like this, right? So my dad will ask the same thing over and over again until Alexa figures out what he's trying to say. And he'll change it a little bit, right? Like he'll modify how he's saying it. And But he never gets frustrated. Like he'll just keep asking for it. Like, yeah. you know, I want to watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And, it, and it's like, you know, pulls up some like commercial or something. And he's like, no, 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 play, you know, and he starts yeah. like playing around with these invocation phrases and he doesn't know anything about that. Right. Like he literally, but it's very interesting to watch. Um, I, same with my children, you know, very interesting to watch how they build these interactions, how they learn, how tolerant they are of these interactions. Um, you know, us who know this technology more, we get frustrated pretty quick. You know, we're like, seriously, you know how to do this. <laughs> Don't play with me, Alexa. Um, but yeah, I definitely have leveraged my watching my kids inspires me to and I also tell companies this in my executive briefings, I'm always saying, these are our customers 1015 years from now, and they are growing up my youngest who's four growing up in voice like our house is all voice activated and I'm not alone. Um, so like they're growing up using voice to do stuff. And if you're not, a, it's almost like the e commerce right trend, you know situation that happened in 2008, like you're going to have to make a decision as a brand to get on the boat or be left behind. Um, and there will be a moment in, and it's probably not for another 10 or 15 years when these kids become consumers that they will decide if you don't operate in a way that they can just push a button and talk to you or say a wake word and talk to you, they won't use your stuff. Yep. Um, and so, <laughs> and the good news is, is right now they're super tolerant of bad, you know, experiences. They'll just keep trying and you can keep evolving. But if you wait till then, which is why, yeah, I always say this. I'm like, if you wait till then you're going to be too late because then you're going to be bad when you start. <laughs> they won't sure, be tolerant of that either. You know, so you have to start now because all of us in every experience, we build bad experiences and then they get better over time with customer feedback. So you have to, the sooner you start, the more, um, you know, more prepared you'll be for this consumer generation we're raising on voice today. Yeah. Cool. Well, the, the last question I have, um, 
so I, I know earlier you mentioned uh, the award from the Alexa conference, but I think something uh, that stood out to me that was super interesting was an award you won this year from VentureBeat uh, in responsibility and, and ethics. Um, I almost and- said that one. I almost yeah. said that one. <laughs> well, good, because I, I definitely want to touch on it, because I think it is important, especially if we're looking into the future, um, to think about, uh, I'd be curious to get your perspective, is is there anything, um, you know, specifically in relation to responsibility or, or ethics with voice-enabled experiences that we need to be paying close attention to today uh, to ensure that we have this you know, positive and high-quality environment for uh, creating voice-enabled experiences in the future? Yeah, I think the, the interesting thing, the reason I, I actually don't know why I got that award, it was a very big surprise <laughs> to me, but I do talk about uh, ethics and responsibility, design justice, like I talk about these things all the time. And the reason I talk about them is because I have some, just because I have children who will eventually be consumers, I have concerns. I also have an aging parent. Um, and as we move into a world of mobile apps, maybe being voice activated, um, you know, I just look at the phone in general, and I realize every single app on that phone has a different privacy policy. Every website has a different privacy policy. Every, um, you know, app on there, you know, has a different user agreement. Um, and, and my dad, he had a cognitive injury, and it triggered some need for him to read every privacy policy on his phone. Like he had 80 apps and he literally for days just, and I just let him, but he just read it. And I remember him looking up and being like, do you know that if you buy something from this company that's American, you have to ship it to Poland to get returned or something like that. And I was like, I I did not know that, (laughs) right? And how true of that for all of us, like how many of us have read those things? We don't, we don't do that. But it's also like, how do we improve user agency and understanding when we're in this world of like, sure, I created a privacy policy, but I know you didn't read it, or I created a user agreement, but I know you didn't read it, because the the convenience I get by using an AI model outweighs any privacy concerns I have. And I know this because I asked on stage, I had like 300 people in the audience, and I asked them, if I could take away airport congestion, you could just drive in, drop off, and leave, every single time, no friction, super pleasant experience, except I need your surveillance data to do it. I need to see your face, need to see who's in your car, know your relationship. Are you, you know, if you're like, obviously if you're married or if you're, you know, newly uh, connected, like maybe you need more time. So I need all this information about you in order to do that. Would you be willing to give it? And this is before I gave them my talk (laughs) on like, don't do that. And 90% of the hands were like, sure, what? yeah, why wouldn't I? Like, I don't care. And what they don't realize is, and that's what we do every day when we download a new app, go to a new device, right? We give this information away because the value we get is so high. We're like, sure, you can have my shopping data. I don't care. But what we don't realize is, I always say like, we're one acquisition away from like the Death Star. Like, we don't know who's going to get that data. We also don't know the user agreement what it says the future of that data is. And in an AI world, that's Skynet, you know, like that's why we have to be so careful. Um, So I encourage companies to do two things. One, be extremely transparent. Like I know it's, it's a problem. We have an entire, I think there's a documentary on Netflix about like the privacy dilemma or paradox. I think that's what it's called the privacy paradox, but Like it's a problem because like there's an entire legal team that gets paid very well to build this like multi-page thing. 
But I remember when Alexa launched, we worked very hard to create a very short, um, you know, little snippet that said, here's what we're doing with your data. And even then, five years later, people were like, but you didn't say, I mean, we did, but you didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> now you care, which is good. But how do we do that? How do we educate our users and keep them aware? Um, and at the same time, be their advocate in a product, even if it hurts the future of our product. Um, that's ethics right there. Like, how do I do something that might hurt me if it's better for the world? Um, and, and that's, those are conversations that are hard to have the higher you go in a company, but I encourage us all to keep pushing and asking those hard questions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Noel, for, for all your uh, different thoughts, sharing your experiences. Uh, really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm sure the, the listeners were, will as well. Uh, for anybody that's listening and, and wants to follow uh, what you're doing, look into to more of the work that you've done, uh, where would you suggest that they uh, go in and check out your work? Yeah, absolutely. The best place to see me is on the LinkedIn. Um, so I'm just mindful leadership on LinkedIn. You can also just search Noelle Silver and find me there. Um, but if you want some fun stuff, I'm noel.ai on TikTok and on Instagram, where I post kind of the fun projects that I'm working on and the different places I'm speaking. So happy to see all of you there. Um, but it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Noel. Uh, really enjoyed it myself. Me too. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Speechly podcast. If you enjoyed this discussion and are interested in the world of voice user interfaces, we would love if you subscribed and checked out future episodes. And if you are ready to integrate a voice user interface in your website or application, or if you would just like to learn more about the opportunities with voice user interfaces, you should check out our website at speechly.com.